So we are looking today at the parable in, in Luke's chapter 7, and we're going to read a, the whole passage here, and it starts in verse 36 and it goes through verse 50. So if you want to flip your Bible open to Luke 7, 36 through 50, and I'm going to be reading from the ESV. One of the Pharisees asked him, Jesus, to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet, Jesus, with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he, Simon, answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, You have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You do not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. As we look into this incredible exchange and an actual dinner party in the first century, I want to unpack our three main characters that are, that are in, in, at play here in this, in this uh, interchange. We're going to see a man with culpable neglect, culpable neglect, a woman with evident devotion, and a savior of unforgettable mercy. First, a man of culpable neglect. His name is Simon. He's a Pharisee. He owns a home, a home big enough to entertain a sizable group, and he wants Jesus to eat at his home. Those are kind of the outward facts about him what his culture, what his community knew about him. That's on his biography, if he'd had a website, I suppose. To put them in other terms that we might be more able, more able to appreciate, maybe modernizing it a little bit, he's successful. He's wealthy. Probably upper middle class. He's privileged. People want to know him. People want to be liked by him. And notice in this interchange that he's not against Jesus. We don't get any clear indication that he's out to get Jesus or trap him. It appears that he wants Jesus in his house for some reason. A few, very few commentators wonder if he was actually trying to trap Jesus and that the lack of hospitality shown Jesus was somehow a purposeful, disgraceful humiliation. We don't know that. I don't tend to think so. I see Simon in this, in this parable. I see Simon, he's a religious person. He's trained in the law as a Pharisee. Again, not civil criminal law, 
as, as Bruce pointed out, the, the other Pharisee, but, but this is the moral law. Things you should know, how you should live, what's right, what's wrong, what's commendable, and what's damnable. What makes you accepted and rejected? By God, yes, and by the church, if you will. But I don't know if Simon was quite as zealous. I don't know if he was quite as all-in as some of the other Pharisees we get. You know, maybe in a good way, again, being open to Jesus. But I get the sense that Simon liked maybe the position as much or more than what it meant. Well, we know from historical accounts that the opportunity to eat together in this situation is not just to eat, but it's, it's conversation, it's discussion. In much the same way that when someone from out of town comes to speak at a, at a church or a school, you know, there's usually an out to dinner with the, with the meeting coordinators. You know, get together with the speaker. You want to come to dinner with the speaker b before the meeting, you know, or afterwards to talk about what he said. And those are, I've been to a few of those. And they're, they're, pretty, they're pretty cool, you know, that, to, to, to see that person one-on-one. -on -one. And when a person of standing in the community invited one of these out-of-town guests into their home for a meal, unlike maybe in our culture, it was understood that other people in the community were welcome to come. Remember, they didn't have a lot of opportunities for learning and for entertainment. So, so if, if you had a home big enough and, and there was room in the house, it was okay for people to come and fill around the outside and listen in. They could come and hear. Now, they're not to, be, they're not to speak or they're not there to inter, interchange if they weren't invited to sit at the table. That was for the experts. That was for the teachers, the well-to-do. No, those who came in from outside, they, as they filled in the sides and the, and the back... They were to listen and watch. You know, in, in words we use about children sometimes, you know, to be seen and not heard. To be invisible. To be forgettable. The size of the group brought honor to the host who's opening his home. So a good big size group is, is, means that, you know, you're, you're more impressive as a host. And, and then, of course, the notoriety of the speaker. But yet Simon is not a very good host in this. And Jesus himself points out Simon's neglect. Again, we can't really assign motives to him. That's not that a good idea, I don't think. Whether he was choosing to humiliate Jesus and treat him as a second-class citizen, or maybe it just happened because of busyness or oversight. We don't know why, but it was neglect. Jesus points that out. And Simon neglected some of the most basic tenets of Middle Eastern, first-century hospitality. You know, using my example, you know, I've, I've spoken to doctor groups in, in different cities, and, you know, most of the time, I, I'm left to fend for myself. You know, okay, Doubletree Hotel, you're on at 3 o'clock, and I got to, you know, get a cab and get my hotel and figure out where it is and find the banquet room. But every now and then, somebody's gracious enough to meet me at the airport, you know, and make sure I've got things squared away. And take care of me. And, I, and that impresses me so much. Whenever I've invited out-of-town people and I'm in charge, I do that for them. Put a little, you know, thing of nuts and raisins, you know, Fresno stuff in their hotel room, you know, or give it to them as a going away and just say, thanks for coming. You know, that, that hospitality is, 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 is you know, it's, it's a big thing. But yet in this inter interchange, in Jesus coming into Simon's home, there's no water for dirty feet. That was a staple. You wash your feet before you come in. There was no oil for dry skin. Again, very important in that, that environment, that culture. There was no welcome kiss of affection, no respect. You know, no, no basket of nuts, no, no greeting at the airport. So this dinner party is settling in. 
Meanwhile, on the other side of the town, we find out about someone else. Verse 37 says, Behold, that's kind of Luke's word for at the same time, like right now, as we speak, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. Contrasting this, woman, this man of culpable neglect is a woman. And we're going to see this woman has evident devotion. It tells us on her resume, her bio, had she had a web page, that she was a sinner. That's how she's known. She was a sinner. She brings an alabaster flask of ointment, or perfume is, is probably a better interpretation. It'd be kind of hard to get ointment out of an alabaster jar, because alabaster jars were generally kind of big at the bottom and then goosenecked up into a small opening. Sometimes they were actually sealed and you had to break them open. Other times they might have had a cork and you could pull them out little by little. What's interesting about alabaster, I learned, is, is that it's somewhat transparent. So it has kind of a shiny, glossy, pretty look to it. And, and of course, that would be enhanced by whatever color is what you put into it. It's also porous. So if you put something strong smelling into alabaster, it does leak out a little bit. So if you had an alabaster jar of a very strong scent, it would act like a little bit of an air freshener, if you think about it, right? Just plugged up on the counter. And it was, it was such a good air freshener and attractive to wear that it was also sometimes fashioned into jewelry. And it would be worn around a woman's neck. And the type of woman that would generally want to wear jewelry like that and have perfume at the ready was typically a woman of ill repute, a sinner, most notably a prostitute. She doesn't tell us she's a prostitute, but that's, a lot of the commentators make that kind of connection. So if you've heard that, that's where that comes from. This woman is entirely different from Simon. She's a sinner. Simon is not one known for, he is one known instead for pointing out the sins in others, as we're going to see. She is a woman. Unvalued, dismissed, with nothing to offer in the public arena. Nothing to offer to the discussion. She's not to speak at any kind of gathering of men talking about important things. That's the culture. Simon, of course, is a man. People listen to him. They care what he thinks. They seek his advice. She honors Jesus, as we see. He neglects the basic courtesies. A man of culpable neglect and a woman of evident devotion. Some commentators are even surprised she makes it in the house. Surprised there wasn't somebody at the door to say, whoa, 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 whoa. You can't come in here. But she does. Despite her low status and sinful reputation, she comes in. She's not a accompanied by a man. Again, in that kind of environment, in a public gathering, she would have been expected to be accompanied by a man of some kind. She's there, it appears, by herself. And I think, as a sidebar here, I think when we finish Galatians and the parables, I think I might take a little look into Luke and how he demonstrates women it's an interesting study. You know, the woman who lost the coin. The woman and the judge, as you read about this week. This woman here. Luke, Luke is telling his readers, we can learn from women. We can wonder if there was a gasp, a moan, or a collective chorus of gossip as, as this woman enters the main room, this sinner. 
The guests are reclining at a low table. Their feet are behind them, and they perhaps become an obstacle to her as she steps around the room. She finds her way to space behind Jesus. Interesting to me. Why would there be space behind him? Isn't he the guest of honor? Maybe there weren't that many people there. Maybe it was a really big room. We don't know for sure. But maybe most of the guests are clustered next to the, the community leaders, the, the who's who, and not so much around Jesus. She finds room behind Jesus. And she weeps. Verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head, kissed his feet. The Greek there is over and over. Kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed. Kept on kissing his feet and anointed them with the ointment or perfume. Tears. Really big tears. Lots of them. You know, I, I have people come to me sometimes because their eyes are too watery. And I can only remember one instance where the watering was so bad, I had one woman, when she would lean down, lean down to read something, the page would get wet from her tears. They were that teary. That's, you know, very rare and unusual. But this woman is tearing so much. One, how, one who somehow gets in, despite her status, despite her situation, she breaks the single rule of a spectator at such a dinner party, to be invisible. Instead, she weeps, filling the room with sobs for everyone to hear. Loud, most likely. Her tears are so excessive that she has enough tears to actually wet Jesus' feet. Think of that. Dirty feet from outside. Her tears wetting. Perhaps noticing that the tears are mixing with the layer of caked on dirt and forming small little rings of mud, she's aware that no one has washed Jesus' feet. She doesn't look for a servant. She doesn't call on the host. Of course, she shouldn't speak up at all. And you'll notice, interestingly, she never says a word in this parable, in this, this section of scripture. She takes it upon herself to provide this common courtesy neglected by Simon. And she's wetting his feet with her tears. And then she does something that surely sets the room abuzz. Gasping, dropped jaws. She lets down her hair. You see, women wore their hair long, but always braided and covered during the day. A wife who wore her hair down and uncovered could be divorced without any financial statement settlement. Gone. It was that serious of an offense in the marriage if a woman wore her hair down and uncovered in public. A woman's hair was intimate, personal. Like her very sexuality... The glory of her hair was reserved for her husband and his pleasure and enjoyment alone. When a woman would let her hair down, it was a bedroom scene. Any of the room there who were married probably could remember their own wedding night ritual when the new bride would lo let loose her hair for her groom, saying by that gesture, I am yours. I am yours 100%. I give myself totally to you and totally for you. She breaks open the fine alabaster jar, and this fragrance fills the air as she rubs Jesus' feet with it. All five senses are now involved. We hear her sob. We see her let her hair down. We smell the perfume. We see her touch Jesus. Recall Judas's reaction to someone doing the same thing and shocking about the money, right? This money could have been used to sell the pearl where another woman anoints Jesus' feet with perfume in his head. 
But in this case, Simon is outraged not because of money. He's not going to neglect this woman's behavior, even though he neglected common courtesies to Jesus. Simon's a right versus wrong guy, and this is just plain wrong. Verse 39. Now the Pharisee who had invited him saw this. He said to himself, If a man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is, and who is touching him. For she is a sinner. Simon felt that if someone speaks from God, then they would judge this woman, not accept her gesture. God judges sin. She's a sinner. Simon expects a prophet from God to resist this over-the-top, inappropriate overture. Simon expects Jesus to say, stop it. Simon's thinking in his mind, tell her to leave, Jesus. Open your eyes, Jesus. Look at her. She's a sinner. Righteous men distance themselves from sin and sinners. Push her away. We would have been left with an incredible puzzle if Luke stopped here, obviously. But the crescendo comes in this parable in verses 40 through 43. Here is the lesson from the scriptures that Luke wants us to, to, to penetrate our, our, our psyche. Jesus answering Simon's thoughts. I guess he is a prophet, isn't he? Jesus answers Simon's thoughts, and he says, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Simon, he says, I have something to say to you. It means something like, can I be frank? I'm going to be I'm going to tell you something honest that you may not want to hear, Simon. Simon says to his credit, say it, teacher. This could be an honest openness. Maybe Simon's heart is changing after just thinking this in his mind. Instead, I think it's more like a continued performance. I think he's, he, Simon's personal life is a bit of an acting career. And Simon, Simon's playing along with his role. How many through the centuries have been playing a part when it comes to God in their spiritual life? Jesus tells a parable to Simon to be frank, to be honest. It's probably the most simple parable that we're studying. Not a whole lot of nuance to it. Not a whole lot of mystery. Pretty straightforward. And as you can tell by how much time I've spent on the actual historical setting, the parable itself doesn't mean much explanation. There's a money lender, bank, savings and loan, credit union. There's two borrowers, both in debt. Both borrowed money from this money lender. Neither has the ability to pay back the debt. Behind, defaulting, in arrears. I don't use that word very much anymore, but I think that's still a good word for it. Neither has the ability to pay back the debt. One owes 50 denarii. One owes 500 denarii, 10 times more. A denarii was equivalent to a day's wage. If, if we're to believe the major media, we're all supposed to at least make $15 an hour. So that would be $120 a day is a day's wage. So I did the math and figured that 50 denarii was about $6,000 today. 500 denarii would be about... Uh, ten times more. 
Another way I thought about this, I thought, well, what if I didn't use minimum wage? What if I used my wage? What if I thought about, okay, 50 denarii is about two months, two and a half months of, of wages. So think about it, men. What do you earn per month? Don't say it out loud. What did you earn as a professional or before you retired? Double a monthly salary. How much of debt is that? And I started to realize that that's about what most of us would probably borrow for, to pay for a car. You know, if two, if two months is, you know, for you is 10 grand, that's probably what you would spend on a car. If two months for you is maybe 100 grand, that's probably what you'd spend on a car. So 50 denarii is kind of like a car loan. 500 denarii is more like two years wages. Okay, what are you going to put on your AGI line this year? Double that, that's probably pretty close to your mortgage. A 500 denarii loan is more like a mortgage. The money lender forgives the debt of both of them. Wiped clean, no obligation, no strings attached, you don't owe it, you're no longer in arrears, off the books, paid in full. Five years ago, we remodeled our office and we did borrow a little bit of money to, to, to make the changes, you know, all at once. And we paid that loan off this month. And I expect to receive in the, month, in the mail in about a month or so, you know, still, they still do this, old school, even with all our electronic transactions. I'm going to get in the mail the, the actual promissory note that I signed five years ago. And what's going to be stamped across it in big red letters? Paid in full. Right across there. Well, in this first century, Greek being the common language, the language of business and commerce, it's still, the word for paid in full was tetelestoi. That's what would have shown on the promissory note. These debts are paid in full. One forgiven a debt about the size of a mortgage, the other forgiven a debt about the size of a car loan. And Jesus says, of the two forgiven debtors, which of them will love the money lender more? And as Simon answers, I almost remember, you know, when you, you, all, most of us used to teach kids, fourth graders, Sunday school teachers, you know, we did that thing. And sometimes you'd ask a question of the kids, and they know the right answer, but it didn't sound very spiritual. So they'd want to say, uh, Jesus, uh, the Bible, uh, God, you know, when the answer was like a squirrel, you know. What's little bushy tail and runs up a tree? Uh, Jesus? Uh, the Holy Spirit. You know, no, it's a squirrel. You know, so I almost feel like Simon's like, uh, is this a trick question? It's a pretty easy parable, pretty easy story. So he says, I suppose uh, the one who owed him more will love him more. Jesus' answer is classic. He says, you have judged rightly. Simon likes the judge, doesn't he? Interesting though, Simon didn't judge Jesus properly, did he? Simon didn't judge the woman properly, as we'll find out. And as we'll also find out, Simon didn't judge himself rightly either. You see, the point of the parable is, yes, Simon, the one with the greater debt will love the one he owes more to if that debt is forgiven and canceled. You are right. You have judged rightly. And even if Luke had ended there, we would have a little more clarity, but we still wouldn't drive home the message until Jesus then brilliantly then brings the drama of the dinner party, the sights, the sounds, the smell, the perfume still lingering in the air, the woman's hair probably still undone. He brings the drama of the dinner party into the lesson in verses 44 to 47. It says, turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? Well, of course he does. Just a minute ago, Simon was screaming in his head, look at her, Jesus. Do you see this woman? 
I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment, perfume. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. With his feet still wet, with the aroma in the air of perfume, with the woman's hair again likely undone, Jesus tells all in attendance, and tells us as well, you Simon, the successful, the self-important, the respected, the one who finds continued fault in others, the one acting apart in their relationship to God, you're the one who sees a small debt. You see your obligation to God as a car loan. But this woman, she, she understands her great debt. One she could not work off, ever pay back. She's the one who loves much. Because she knows the helplessness of being under the weight of that great debt. Bruce did a fantastic job those few weeks ago of articulating the doctrine of double imputation. Some of you might have not even known he was doing that. But it was a fantastic simple explanation of, of, of atonement and propitiation and, and God taking our sins and putting them on Christ and his righteousness and putting it on him. I, I like, it's also summarized very succinctly in a real simple chorus that, that I love to think about. And if, if you ever want to just kind of encapsulate that whole concept of deep theological truth, and I've shared with you this, this, this chorus with you men before, he says, he paid a debt he did not owe. I owed a debt I could not pay. I needed someone to take my sins away. And now I sing a brand new song, Amazing Grace. Christ Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. You want to have a, a, an encapsulated understanding of the gospel? You want to understand the key cornerstone of life? Come back to this truth. These Two simple debtors. Jesus paid a debt that I could never pay. The man with culpable neglect meets the woman with evident devotion and the God of unforgettable mercy tells them this. Jesus tells them, you Simon, you love little because you look at your offenses as little offenses. You see your rebellion against God Small, like a car loan. A debt? Sure, a debt. But not the one you'd get thrown into prison for or out in the streets. You see your debt as manageable. You know, Simon thought about his debt, his sin, and he, he probably thought, you know, it's too bad I'm behind on my payments. Too bad I couldn't make the stroke. But it's not that big of a deal. I'm not so bad. I'm not so pitiful. I'll do better next time. The next time I buy a car, I'll, I'll, I'll handle the debt better. That's a 50 denarii thinking. That's a forgiven little thinking. I can do this. I, I can be, I'm not that bad. I can, I can work this off. To the woman, Jesus says, to us about the woman, Jesus says, she loves much because she sees herself rightly. A sinner with a massive debt. She couldn't pay back ever. A debt so big and so delinquent that she was going to become a slave if she didn't pay it. Because that's what happened in that first century with a huge debt. You couldn't pay it. You became a servant. You became a slave. 
But now it's forgiven. It's paid in full. She is debt free to tell a story. And when your debt is that big and your situation is that ominous and that foreboding, you can't act with neglect. When your debt is forgiven, you can't be blasé or matter of fact. You are overwhelmed. You are amazed and in awe of that forgiveness. You know, like the character Buddy in the Christmas movie Elf. You know, I'm in love and I'm love and I don't care who knows it, right? It's that kind of joy that springs up in this woman that she understands the massiveness of the debt and the slavery she had to it before Christ. Not that the things that she did were so bad. That's not the point. The point is that everything we do from self-motive is that bad. Galatians 5.1 tells us, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. You see, we drift into legalism when we look at ourselves as 50 denarii sinners. Rather than incredible love in response to unforgettable mercy, we don't really respond as if our debt is canceled, wiped clean, and forgiven. Instead, we almost respond as if we've just refinanced. You know, just refinance the debt. We aren't that bad off. It wasn't that serious. I can do better. We say, okay, Christ has forgiven me, but there's still monthly payments, still weekly rituals, still sins I have to stop, works I have to do. We start adjusting the rules, comparing ourselves to others. We want to keep this wrong self-image alive. We go from self... self-gratification uh, to self preservation and glorification this I'm not that bad response to forgiveness that it's that that leads us to a loveless lukewarm culpable neglect one pastor teaching on this this section says that that's the purpose of the sin sorry that's the purpose of the church is to point out to us how deep of debt we are to show us our great sinfulness and respect and relationship to a holy God not to beat us up, not to discourage us, not to get us to try harder, but to show us the greatness of the forgiveness. To draw us to love the Savior who has given us that cancellation. It's also been impressed on me that this male-female interaction in this, in this section of Scripture, this, this almost sexual atmosphere, if you'll forgive me, of this dinner party that's introduced by these cultural elements, I think that's an important lesson for us. We're the bride of Christ. We are called to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, and with all of our strength. Passionate, pleasureful, peaceful, liberated, sold out love. We are Christians. We're in love, we're in love, and we shouldn't care who knows it. They will know you are mine by your love, Jesus said. If anyone loves me, he will keep my commandments. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy your, may be in you and that your joy may be full. See, we shouldn't be beat up, discouraged, depressed into obedience as if, as if the, the life of discipleship is drudgery. We should be letting our hair down. We should be breaking open bottles of perfume in joyful celebration of that amazing debt that has been canceled on our behalf. The gospel gives us the right understanding of our relationship with God 
and it transforms our life and our actions. Verses 48 to 50. He said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Our groom, our savior, has canceled the debt. The great, massive, unbelievable, inconceivable debt that we owe. As Jesus hung on the cross giving his life for the payment of our debt, he, he cried out, he cried out to, the, to all who would hear, he cried out, It is finished! In Greek, he cried out, Tetelestoi! That's what that means. Paid in full. In blood-red ink stamped across the promissory note of the old, broken, old covenant. Paid in full. We are released from that debt, released from the obligation to pay back God. We're free to a life of peace and joy and love. We're not free to refinance, to do better, to try harder. We're free to enter into a new covenant, a new agreement of love-fueled love works of faith. The mercy of God fuels the devotion of the redeemed. That's the first quote I used tonight. The mercy of God fuels the devotion of the redeemed. And it's a passionate, love-filled, intimate devotion. Faith is not something you agree with, a proclamation you make. Faith is love that works. Killing the flesh and walking by the Spirit because of an overwhelming response to being forgiven a great, great debt. I'm going to give you an analogy that works for me. It may or may not work for you, but think about your lawn for a minute, if you have one, or you used to. Nice, green, lush lawn. Think about the weeds. Growing a rich, full, lush lawn, think of that like the fruit of repentance, of understanding and walking by the Spirit in loving obedience. You want a nice, rich, green, full lawn. See, many times as Christians, I think we, we, we give each other bottles of Roundup to go kill the weeds instead of bottles of miracle grow to go help the lawn grow better. Because the richer and fuller the lawn grows, the less chance there is the weeds will have an opportunity, right? We spray every weed, we create dead spots everywhere instead of utilizing fertilize to promote and facilitate the growth of godliness, trust, and faith. We look at people with dry dirt yards and we maybe can't point out any weeds, but we wonder, where's the grass? You know, the gospel should come into our day-to-day -day life. That what saves us also sanctifies us. If you want to read a whole book on that, you read Faith and Future Grace by John Piper. Another book I love is, is, is Discipleship um, Summoned to the Ser Servant King by Jonathan Lunday. And he said this, Love for God involves more than a feeling of warm devotion during the singing of a praise chorus. Rather, it entails reverence, commitment, and obedience to God that reflects the acknowledgement of God's roles as creator and redeemer. This obviously involves knowing God and his will in scripture and living in alignment with his character. You want to work on pulling the weeds and growing the grass? Know God better. It's not just, well, stop reading Playboy and just read your Bible more. Should you read the Bible? Absolutely. But read it to know God, to see the debt, to see the forgiveness, to see what he has called you to. Then your response is, is a loving, relationship-fueled response in obedience, not a rule-keeping, weed-spraying legalism.
you're trusting God's character and his faithful promise-keeping history so much so that your life wants to acknowledge his character. You know, I pray as, as I grow older, as all of us grow older, that we see the magnitude of our sin and rebellion clearer and clearer and clearer, that God becomes bigger and bigger and more holy and more holy, and we see sin more in our life, not less, because we understand how perfect he is. And the result of that clearer vision, can, it can devastate us, but not devastate us with discouragement, but with unbelievable love for an unforgettable mercy. I'm going to finish with a quote, of course, from a song. And it's not a hymn or a chorus that you've probably ever sung in church. But I think you probably have all heard the words. And it's by, sung by Nat King Cole. And he didn't know he was summarizing this gospel when he sang the lyrics written by Irving Gordon from the song Unforgettable. And I want to finish with just that last chorus as he sings it. And you can hear him in your mind. He says, Unforgettable in every way and forevermore that's how you'll stay. That's why, darling, it's incredible that someone so unforgettable thinks that I am unforgettable too. That's the beauty of the gospel. That someone as unforgettable as the Savior, the Son of God, thinks that you are unforgettable and worthy of his love and worthy of his forgiveness and died, rose and ascended and lives again so that he can have you back forever. That's the gospel. That's the kind of love and response we are called into. And as men, do we, do we have the confidence, do we have the ability to even think about using words like darling in relationship to God? To letting our hair down in, in intimacy and in, in our own way, in a way that is dignified that, but not so dignified that it's buttoned up too tight, but that's respectful to who he is. And that's what I would encourage you to do as you talk in the tables and as you go from here, is how does Jesus move you? And how can you be moved more by him if you understand more deeply, more richly, more personally what has been done for you? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for the opportunity tonight and these other few weeks and just to study these words of Jesus, to study these parables, to be changed by them in their simpleness, yet their depth, in their beauty, there's complexity, but a complexity that also is somewhat simple. We owed a debt we could not pay. Jesus paid a debt he did not owe. Amazing grace. Father, thank you again for this opportunity and privilege to be with these men. And pray that you would go with them in their journey to be disciples of you in love with you more and more every day. Amen. All right, break up to your tables.